Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues in foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. As China catches up with the world's most advanced economies, it excites fascination as well as fear, especially in the United States, where many of us worry that China might replace America as a 21st century superpower. We wonder how China has grown so big so fast and what Beijing's expanding global influence means for the rest of us. Perhaps the most baffling aspect to those of us who have spent our lives working in the so-called free enterprise system is how a repressive communist country can apparently beat the rest of us at our own game. And so we ask, how can their authoritarian style of government continue to control what otherwise seems to be a freewheeling entrepreneurial success? To help us, to help us understand this rather impossible set of circumstances is our speaker, probably the best authority on China in the country. He is Mingxin Pei, a native of China, his bachelor degree from the Shanghai International Studies Institute, <clears throat> and his master's and PhD in political science from Harvard. Formerly senior associate at the Asia program of the Carnegie Endowment, he is the chaired professor of government and the director of the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. He is the author of a number of books on modern China. His research has been published in foreign policy, foreign affairs, and many edited books. He is a frequent commentator on CNN and NPR. His op-eds have appeared in the Financial Times, New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek International, and the International Herald Tribune. And when I picked him up at the airport yesterday, he said just before he got on the plane back home, <coughs> he had to dash out the column for the International uh, Herald Tribune. He is an expert on governance in the People's Republic of China, on U.S.-Asia relations, and on democratization in developing nations. But let's hear from the man himself. Please help me welcome to Dallas, Dr. Mingxin Pei. Thank you very much, Mel. It's, uh, it's my second visit uh, to Dallas and uh, second appearance in front of this very distinguished audience. I'm very honored, and I want to thank Mel for bringing me back. Mel is persistent. He never takes no for an answer. And I think that because of that, uh, the people like me benefit uh, from uh, uh, getting to know uh, uh, people from very different backgrounds, and then, of course, uh, the World Affairs Council uh, also benefits from uh, the expertise he's able to bring to this uh, group. Uh, uh, as Mel's introduction uh, mentioned, China is indeed uh, a very uh, timely topic because it excites fascination 
and anxiety at the same time. Uh, if you look at newspaper headlines, uh, China often gets mentioned, sometimes in positive light, sometimes in not so positive light. Uh, my talk will address three uh, big questions. Uh, the first question uh, is, uh, uh, will China's economic miracle continue under the current one-party system? The second question is, will the current economic uh, growth, if it continues, undermine the one-party state? And finally, I will touch upon the issue most Americans care about, that is, whether a very powerful one-party state uh, uh, be a friend or a foe of the United States. To, uh, to start, China, the China model, uh, whatever it means, seems to uh, be very attractive to American journalists and some American business leaders uh, because this is a system that has delivered uh, very high economic growth rate, double-digit growth for 30 years. Uh, 30 years ago, China was probably uh, five, less than 5% of American GDP, probably I would say 2% of American GDP measured in exchange rate terms. Uh, by 1992, I think China was only 6%. Uh, 2000, China was uh, roughly 15%. Today, China is almost 40% of U.S. GDP. So you look at this ra very rapid catch-up, you will say, my gosh, something is going on. They may have found the secret uh, a secret success uh, to uh, 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 the secrets to economic success. And second uh, thing that Americans or people in the West marvel about China is that this is a country that seems to be able to respond very effectively, very quickly to economic crisis. Uh, four years ago, when the rest of the world was facing economic stagnation, the Chinese government spent tens of billions, actually probably a trillion dollars worth of economic stimulus, very big in terms of the percentage of GDP. And they, deliver, they brought back rapid economic growth. Compared with the rest of the world, uh, the Chinese economy was booming, the others uh, were stagnating. And the third thing people marvel about China is that its leaders appear to have strategic vision. They look very far ahead. Uh, unlike democratically elected leaders who worried about the next four years or next three years, the Chinese leaders who are not elected, incidentally, can afford to think ahead. That's why they target specific industries with investments. Uh, you cannot do this in a democratic elect elected country because that uh, would involve a lot of fight over policy among various interest groups. But in China, if you read the columns of Thomas Freeman, he's incidentally a very big fan of China. Uh, he would uh, single out China's enormous success in building the world's largest high-speed rail network. And in the U.S., you know, if you have taken the so-called high-speed uh, uh, train service from Washington to New York, 
it's not exactly very high speed. It's 70 miles an hour. <laughs> the Chinese can do 200 miles an hour. Uh, so, uh, so he very, very impressed. And then he, if you, again, uh, his columns often mention China's investment in green technology. Incidentally, China now is the largest producer of green technology. That's because the Chinese government has invested enormous sums of money, mostly through subsidies, to encourage wind power, solar power uh, to grow. And again, in the democratic country, in the in the U.S. in particular, that would be very hard to do because, A, Congress does not have the money to uh, invest, <laughs> uh, at least on that scale, and B, uh, all kinds of companies would say, I'm a very deserving company. So, but China does not have the problem. And finally, the Chinese leadership appears to be very pro-business. Uh, I came across a column, uh, uh, an interview with the CEO of Coca-Cola, uh, some time ago, and he said, China has the most pro-business government in the world, period. Then he would cite how, it is, how easy it is to get regulations, how it, easy it is to hire workers. And here I want to give you one example. Uh, iPhones, right. Uh, the New York Times published a, a fascinating story on why the U.S., why iPhones cannot be made in the U.S. About two weeks ago. It's a Sunday cover story. I, uh, if you Google the New York Times, you're going to get that story. And it began with this very interesting anecdote. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs uh, was obsessed with design. And the initial iPhone came out with a plastic cover, and he hated it because uh, keys would scratch the cover, and he said that would uh, de uh, degrade the aesthetic appeal of iPhone. So six weeks before they were supposed to launch the iPhone, the first-generation iPhone, Steve Jobs said, let's switch to uh, glass. Six weeks. They managed to get the glass, glass supply, but I've, all iPhones are uh, assembled in China. So how are they going to cut the glass, get the, uh, get the plastic cover replaced with glass? The story of in the New York Times began with this scene, this was middle of the night. The glasses were arriving, those uh, uh, small glass screens were, were arriving at the factory. So the uh, factory in China woke up the workers from their sleep, mid middle of the night. Every one of them was given a cup of tea and a piece of biscuit. And they began to work 12-hour shifts right away. And in a week, they ramped up the production to 60,000 a week. And then said, you just cannot do this in the U.S. because there are work rules, <laughs> union rules. And uh, uh, certainly, I do not believe uh, somebody would be willing to go to the factory floor middle of the night with a biscuit and a cup of coffee. <laughs> so, that's, uh, so these are the things people cite about China. And then the conclusion they draw is that this is an economic juggernaut charged with not just motivation, capital, but enormous drive to succeed. And if you plot ahead 10, 15 years, the U.S. is growing 2-3%. China's uh, growth is about 7% for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, and then if you factor in uh, the appreciation of China's currency, because 
uh, a stronger a country's currency is, the bigger its economy becomes in global comparative terms. In fact, the Economist, which, uh, which Jane, uh, Jane mentioned, had on its website has this integrate uh, 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 feature. Is that you plot in, you plug in the numbers uh, comparing the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy, and then you it will tell you at which point the Chinese economy will surpass the U.S. economy in exchange rate terms, in dollar terms, not in something called purchasing power parity. And uh, uh, some economists say it will take 10, 15 years, but most of them agree that at some point in the next two decades, the Chinese economy will be bigger than the U.S. economy. But of course, because China has four times more people, China as a nation, as a society, will still be a lot poorer than the U.S. But to uh, wrap up this part about why people are fascinated about China is that, wow, this is a country that has dynamism, that has a government that can decide, that has a government that can think ahead. So my job today is trying to look behind newspaper headlines, uh, numbers, and cast some skepticism on this conventional wisdom. Uh, because uh, the, one of the assumptions about uh, China's future is that the country's economic growth actually cannot continue without a one-party system. Because when you look at the supposed advantages China has, a lot of that uh, has to do with China's one-party system. Talk about very flexible work rules. Talk about pro-business environment. Talk about invest, massive investment in things Western democracies cannot even dream about. It all comes down to the nature of the political system. So in other words, if you have democracy in China, think about unions, think about rising wages because of union organizing, think about the high taxes, because in a democracy, more people vote, and more poor people vote than rich people, you're going to have higher tax rates. So think about the welfare state. So in other words, people who look at the connection between democracy and economic growth in developing countries will say, if you want to slow China down, bring in democracy. <laughs> if you want to keep uh, China uh, growing, then let the one-party state survive. I would say, wait a minute. This is probably a bit too su superficial a uh, connection. Uh, my uh, 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 position is the opposite. I think the one-party state, if it continues, actually will stifle China's economic growth. So, uh, uh, these are the simple reasons. Uh, the first one is, uh, I think, fairly straightforward. And in the audience, I know that there are quite a few lawyers. Uh, Tim, the chairman of the World Affairs Council, is a lawyer. So you know, in a uh, one-party state, there is no rule of law. When you don't have the rule of law, a legal system that protects your property rights, you do not have the confidence in the security of your property rights. And what it means in practice is that if you own a house, if you own stocks, if you own a, a business, uh, anybody in a powerful position can come after you and take it away from you. And no courts 
can protect you because the courts are controlled by the one-party state. So this is a fundamental feature of a one-party state. The one-party regime is above the law. If it's not above the law, then it is not a one-party state. So in the case of China, what we are seeing recently is that even though the country is growing, gaining wealth, the size of the middle class is expanding, and China has a lot of billionaires, people, the wealthy in China, are not actually very confident about their future. A uh, uh, survey done of China's dollar millionaires, we're talking about real millionaires, they, they're worth about probably 10 million yuan, which is about $1.5 million in U.S. terms. Uh, there are quite a few of them. Uh, Boston Consulting Company did a survey of their intentions. Uh, half of them say they want to emigrate abroad. So this, of course, they emigrate for all kinds of reasons. Uh, the lack of confidence in the future of this system, in large part because the system does not guarantee their property rights, in my mind, is a very important factor. Uh, and of course, if you read newspaper headlines uh, coming out of China, you see uh, many instances of local governments taking away people's houses, taking away their land, uh, and paying them a pittance for their property. And that's another example. So uh, and even the wealthiest people in China are not very secure. Uh, if you look at the list of billionaires in China, say, 10 years ago, and then tr track them down, I think half of the list, uh, half of the people on that list are in jail uh, because they can all, because the, uh, several things. Probably they've done something not exactly, shall we say, honest. <laughs> uh, but mo uh, another factor is that China is a transition economy where laws and rules, many of them operate in the gray area. So you can run afoul of government regulations all the time. But third effect is that what if you run a very successful business and then the government, a government official wants to take your business away and he can use his power to accuse you falsely of violating the law. Uh, so that's, uh, and here I, uh, uh, the, uh, I want to get this uh, once I think uh, the, uh, once I was on a flight from Narita to LA and next to me uh, was a Chinese businessman who was doing really well uh, he owned a shopping mall and uh, I said are you uh, why are you living in the US <laughs> He's, uh, he spends his uh, time uh, in the sunny Southern California flying model planes I said why why do you uh, live in the U.S.? He said, well, I, I, I think the U.S. is a lot safer. <laughs> uh, but I said, how do you run your business? Uh, he told me a story which I found very uh, illuminating about this insecurity of property rights. He owns a shopping mall. I said, how do you hi uh, uh, hire people to do your services? He said, there's one company... Uh, uh, owned by retired police officers. <laughs> and they offer their businesses uh, their protection. If they do not use their businesses, 
uh, thugs would come and smash the windows. Uh, and this is not an isolated incident. We're talking about uh, officials, ex-officials in China using their power to extract extortion money from private property. So in that kind of situation, uh, I do not believe that capital will be secure. And the second uh, source of problem is not just the rule, uh, lack of rule of law, uh, but uh, a government that, re- that is not accountable to the ordinary people, to, to the voters, the lack of political accountability, uh, and uh, no uh, press freedom in China, uh, no civil society in China, that kind of structural condition uh, will lead to uh, out-of-control corruption. Just You see this everywhere. One-party state not subject to uh, the scrutiny of civil society uh, and a free press. Its officials uh, can use their power, misuse their power for personal benefits. And in China, that's a huge problem. Uh, uh, we Again, uh, the statistics, uh, uh, I've, I've done uh, one study. I guess, based on my uh, very rough estimates, Probably Chinese officials uh, steal or take bribes worth 3% of GDP. Just think about Chinese GDP now is about $6 trillion. 3% is almost $200 billion going to a very small group of people. Uh, so that's, uh, that alone is a, a shocking figure. But if you read the press stories, uh, they're just everywhere. Well, the Financial Times... Uh, carried a story about China's so-called princelings. Uh, these are children of very senior officials. It mentioned two people. Uh, one of them uh, is the son of a party boss in a big province. Uh, that son, who went to Oxford, is now attending the Kennedy School, uh, showed up in front of the, the U.S. ambassador's residence Mr. Huntsman, who was an ex-ambassador, the senior official's son was taking the ambassador's daughter out for a date, and he showed up in a red Ferrari. We're talking about poor graduates. When I was in graduate school at Harvard, I think my monthly stipend was like 600 bucks. I think on 600 bucks, you can get a Ferrari. Tell me the dealer's name. (laughs) But he showed, so how can he... Incidentally, in China, a Ferrari goes for about a million bucks. So that, clearly, there's a big question mark. And there's even a shock, more shocking anic- revelation in that story is that uh, another, a son of a former vice president of China, a uh, very senior leader, uh, he bought a mansion overlooking the Sydney Harbor. I've not been to Sydney, but I'm sure the Sydney Harbor is one of the most beautiful places in the world. But that uh, princeling bought a, a, a mansion worth $35 million, overlooked the harbor, and he promptly torn it down and built another big mansion with interconnecting swimming pools, as the story goes. Again, ask your question, how can somebody uh, an, uh, from China have that kind of money uh, if uh, uh, that person did not have 
uh, connections to, uh, uh, to the government. So in other words, uh, if you have massive corrup uh, corruption in the system, you're going to siphon off uh, enormous wealth that otherwise could have been devoted to economic development. If you look at history of economic development uh, in developing world, you can, uh, I defy you to find me a case where there was so much corruption and economic growth continued without interruption. Uh, the example that came to my mind is always Indonesia. Right? For a while, Indonesia, if you remember, was an economic success story, 66 to 97, before the East Asian financial crisis. The country was uh, uh, viewed as an economic miracle, but the country was very corrupt. But then economic crisis, boom, the banking system collapsed. Then you know it, the banking system collapsed because there was so much corruption in the country. So if China does not in, uh, change, its change its political system and economic and uh, corruption remains rampant, I just do not see how the country can continue to go ahead. And corruption also is uh, causing social tensions in China because one immediate effect of corruption is inequality. As I said, if you every year transfer $200 billion to a very small group of people, we're talking about no more than, say, five, six million very uh, powerful people, then you're going to make inequality in China much worse. Ch incidentally, Chinese inequality is already the highest in East Asia. It used to be one of the most equal uh, societies in East Asia in East Asia. So that will uh, make society much more unstable, and when you have unstable society, economic growth uh, slows down. And then corruption will also uh, lead to the uh, underinvestment in education, in healthcare, and in the building of social safety nets. Uh, when you go to China, you find a huge contrast. One, on the one side, if you uh, happen to walk past a government office building, it looks like Capitol Hill or looks like this just really fancy American uh, the, the top-notch office building, this government building. Then if you walk another mile or so, you will see a school building dilapidated. That's, the contrast just shows you why corruption undermines a country's economic future. If you recall, in 2008, uh, China had this earthquake. Uh, what happened in the earthquake? A lot of people died. But what about the deaths of those people? They are most, a lot of them were school children. How did they die? Because school buildings collapsed. And not a single government building collapsed in that earthquake. So that shows, uh, well, that example illustrates the danger, the risks in the system because of uh, corruption. Uh, and then uh, finally, I think, uh, the Chinese capitalism is a strange kind of capitalism. It is not market-based capitalism or liberal capitalism. It is state capitalism, which means the state uses government-owned enterprises to compete against private companies. 90% of China's largest companies are government-owned. 
in terms of sales, in terms of market capitalization. 70% of bank loans go to these companies. On the one hand, they're very big. They suck in a lot of uh, resources. On the other hand, they're not very efficient. Uh, I've seen a study which concludes that if you take away subsidized subsidized loans and tax breaks, these state-owned companies are actually losing money in China. The companies that make money in China are all state monopolies, telecom service companies, energy companies, uh, railroads uh, companies, uh, the, uh, power uh, uh, grid uh, uh, operators. Uh, they c- contribute 85% of uh, the profits. Most of the state-owned companies actually lose money. So if this kind of capitalism continues, uh, obviously it's not going to be very sustainable because we know that at the end of the day, if you do not make a return on capital, you cannot survive. I, mean, I don't have to speak to this audience who knows about the real logic of capitalism very well. So in other words, uh, state capitalism if it continues on one party rule, on the one party rule, will not continue. But the, uh, the catch here is that one party rule cannot survive without state capitalism. The answer is very simple. Why there has to be a marriage between state capitalism and one party rule? Think about how the Chinese Communist Party attracts the most talented, the most ambitious people. The party has to offer them really good perks, good jobs, job security. And how can the party deliver those good jobs? Without state-owned companies, the party cannot deliver those jobs. So the party has to control those perks, those jobs, which will come with enormous economic efficiency. That's why you have, the moment China loses state capitalism, the one-party system will unravel. So uh, that's why if you think through the problem with security of property rights, the problem of accountability and corruption, and the problem with state capitalism, then you say maybe one-party system is not going to do so well in the future. And now I want to just make some bold projections. Normally I don't, but... What do I have to fear? (laughs) I would say that China's growth probably has peaked. Its best days are behind behind it. Because the 30 years of double-digit growth, you're not going to see China growing at double-digit anymore in the future. I think that period is over for the following reasons. One is very simple. China's rapid economic growth coincided with a very favorable population profile, uh, so-called demographic dividend. That is, you have a relatively young population, very small retiree population. That lasted about 30 years. It's over. You can actually date. It's 2015. China will see uh, a fundamental shift in its population profile. And in all other countries, when you have younger population, economic growth is going to be higher because you spend much less money on health care, pensions. 
wages will be low because you have new people coming into the workforce. So that period of so what what have the case, even if China has a democratic government, secure property rights, Chinese economic growth will slow. Japan, I incident I just came back from Japan, Japan's economic malaise, eighty five percent has a lot uh, has to do with its uh, population because this is a country that's losing its population. So if, if you apply the logic to China, uh, the next 20, 30 years uh, demographic aging uh, is going to be a huge obstacle. I'm not saying that it will bring down growth enormously. It will simply require a different kind of growth. The second uh, uh, cause is that China in, last, in the last 30 years benefited from the so-called globalization dividend. That is, China, when you open up your economy, you have to do so uh, in the right circumstances. And China was very lucky. It opened up its economy uh, when the Cold War was over, was always about to be over. So there was globalization, enormous access to overseas markets. Uh, poor country has one problem in economic development because economic development is demand-driven. If you have demand, you can produce to meet that demand. But poor economies do not have consuming power because people are so poor. Even if they can produce, even if you build efficient factories can produce, you don't have people there to sell the goods to. So if the poor economies have access to the markets of developed economies, they can grow above their potential. That was the story of Japan. That was the story of East Asia, China, and now India. Last 20 years, the world's market was completely open to China. So Chinese economy probably grew 2 to 3 percentage points faster than it otherwise could. Now you look at the developed economies in the world for the next 10, 20 years, 10 years at least, the U.S. and Europe at least a decade of very slow growth, if not stagnation. And that means demand for Chinese goods will slow. So that's, so that's for China. And incidentally, China sells 60% of its exports to developed economies. So that's a huge chunk. So that, that's... And finally, is that the last 30 years, China could do the easy thing in terms of catching up. The base, economic base, was very low in terms of technology requirements. But China today is a middle-income in country. And if you look at global experience, is that for middle-income countries to continue to grow, they've got to innovate. They've got to uh, compete not on the basis of labor cost, because somebody else can always come in and undercut you in terms of labor cost. Indi Indians, Bangladeshis, Indonesians, Vietnamese. So you've got to be able to deliver higher productivity. And that's a lot more difficult in the one-party state. Let me just give you some examples. You've got to let the universities uh, operate like freewheeling places uh, of higher education. Today, universities in China are run like government bureaucracies. You've got to increase information I think it's uh, the flow of information, access to information. But if a government keeps censoring the Internet, it's hard to do. In other words, uh, innovation requires 
a lot of flexibility, uh, cultural change. It's not something you can buy with money. So if you look at these three factors, uh, I think you may conclude that maybe China's best days are behind, behind it. Uh, and then the second question I want to address is, even if economic growth continues, will one party state uh, survive? The historical record shows a very bleak picture for uh, countries, for authoritarian regimes. Basically, if you look at uh, authoritarian regimes and levels of income, you find this curve is that at the very low level of income, under $1,000 per capita, authoritarian regimes are fairly stable because countries are dreadfully poor, and if the uh, 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 dictators control the army, they can maintain power. And at the very high end, high level of income, primarily oil states, we're talking about above 6000 per capita. They're very stable because authoritarian regimes can use money to buy off the people. Go to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. You know people have been bought and paid for, right? They, they, get this, they have this contract with the government. They get uh, all kinds of goodies without having to fight for them. The problem is in the middle, very unstable. When uh, authoritarian regimes go through industrialization, income rising, they face enormous challenges from social challenge. And China is in that zone. China is about $4,000 in dollar terms, $6,000 in PVP. So it's in a very unstable zone. And even if China gets lucky, uh, gets through this unstable zone and uh, graduate above 6000 then it will be in uncharted territory. There, I would say, it will be the only one. There are only two countries, non-oil producers, that have maintained one-party rule above $6,000. That's Malaysia and Singapore. But both countries are not opening up. So the historical record is not good. It's not encouraging for one-party systems. And another one is that the longest, the, the, the record in terms of regime survival for one-party re, uh, systems in the world is about 74 years. That's the former Soviet Union. So China now is 62, 63 at the end of this year. So we're talking about in another 10, 15 years, it will be breaking a record. Uh, so that, I'm not saying that this is uh, said it's an iron law, but we know that there's a good, probably there's a good reason why no authoritarian regimes have lasted over 75 years. Right? The, the pre in Mexico, the KMT in Taiwan, uh, they all crumble around the age of 70. So we, you look at the historical record, and then you look at uh, some other uh, indicators. I uh, often use two. One is urbanization. Is that the, because more urbanized the society is, the easier it is for political opposition to organize and contest for power. China today is 50% urban. Urbanization rises about 1% a year, so we're talking 20 years. It will be essentially an urban society. One party state has enormous trouble controlling urbanized societies. And the other data, uh, the data point I look at is uh, college educated uh, people. Because college educated people are very ambitious. 
and they tend to uh, think more freely, and they are dissatisfied with the political status quo. And one thing a one-party state can do is to co-opt them, get them into the system. But there's one physical constraint. You can only bring so many people into the system. So this is the mass I think the Chinese Communist Party leaders ought to be doing. Every year, China graduates 7 million from its colleges, universities, and 1 million from its graduate schools. So it's 8 million right there. And I look at the recruitment statistics for the Chinese Communist Party. It recruits a million new members with college degrees every year. So 7 million are left outside the door. I think they're going to piss from outside into the tent. <laughs> so that means they, we're seeing a steady increase in a group that will be excluded from this patronage system and will become frustrated. So do your math, 7 million a year, 10 years, 70 million. That's incidentally about the size of the Chinese Communist Party. So you will have a huge source of political threat. So finally, let me say the future of U.S.-China relations if political change does not happen in China. On that front, I'm very pessimistic. I have always thought that uh, the policy of engaging China is the correct one. Uh, but I'm also worried about the prospect of a China that is very powerful militarily, economically, but politically on the one-party rule. What will that happen to U.S.-China relations? Uh, I think there will be some form of strategic conflict for several reasons. First of all, I think the U.S. Uh, would view that kind of China as a threat uh, because that kind of China will have the military capabilities of keeping the U.S. out of Asia. The, uh, that kind of China will have the military capabilities to support regimes not friendly to the United States. Just think about Iran today. You know, had China been powerful enough to say no to the U.S.? And if uh, China uh, tells the U.S., don't even think about attacking Iran. We're going to give Iran all the highway it needs to defend itself. Just think about that kind. Uh, suppose China, in other words, is as powerful as the former Soviet Union militarily during the Cold War. That would have been a very unpleasant scenario, right? So I think that will itself. The other problem is that the Chinese uh, Communist Party itself will view the U.S. as a political threat because the U.S. Uh, uh, dem uh, democratic system may do business with authoritarian regimes around the world, but fundamentally, Americans and American politicians do not think authoritarian regimes are legitimate. So there's no acceptance of political legitimacy. And also, between a one-party system and a dem democracy, there can be no strategic trust. You just cannot rely on a guy's words that we're not going to uh, encroach upon your interests. And then there's another uh, source of competition. I think uh, 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 Jim or uh, 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 some, somebody else just mentioned in the introduction is that 
competition for resources. China is very resource, it's a very resource inten intensive economy. So what China will do is, and now if you know the situation of oil, minerals, most of these resources are in very unstable regions. And China will go there and compete. And there will be competition, rivalry. So that's why I think uh, there's going to be competition regardless of the form of Chinese political system. Okay. The, that's the nature of the economy. But with a political system that is antithetical uh, in terms of principles uh, to the U.S. political system, I think the likelihood of political, of strategic conflict is much, much greater. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Pei. Uh, uh, he's given us so much to think about. It's just it's kind of dazzling. Uh, we, we run these in a very effective way, our Q&As. We ask for three questions at a time, and, and he, will, he will answer the questions in order. Uh, doing three questions at a time saves a lot of time, but in addition, we ask everybody, no editorializing, just simply the question itself. So now we'll accept questions, a show of hands. Um, back there, that one. Considering how you've described China today, what do you think of their attempt to establish 25 internationally recognized universities? Now, I have uh, index cards of questions from our high school students, and I'll read one of those now. This is from uh, Nathan, Matthew Path of Clark High School. How was China affected, well, that was covered in, in his talk. Uh, how, how was China affected by the global recession? He answered that, I'm sorry. Then Matthew Smith or Clark, how is the United States supposed to compete with the low manufacturing costs in China? That'll be the second question. And now one more. Thank you. Uh, China wants, China, the Chinese government uh, understands that it cannot, uh, it has to be able to compete in terms of research and development, and then it has a very ambitious program of uh, establishing world-class universities. Uh, unfortunately, I do not think that under the present system, it's doable, because uh, those of us who've been to top world-class universities, most of them are in the U.S., know how these universities function. These are the things. Universities need an ecosystem to flourish. We're not just talking about money. You need civil society. You need a, a philanthropic culture. You need uh, a contacts with the larger commercial world, you need absolute freedom. You need complete autonomy in running universities. You need to give faculty not just a job security, but a lot of empowerment in running the university. So if you tick off that list and ask the question, can the Chinese government supply these conditions other than money? One thing China does have at the moment is money. Uh, but it does not have anything else. So 
I'm very pessimistic. They've been doing this for the, they've been saying this for the last 10 years. They've been wasting a lot of money just show what, where they, they, they uh, because when you, uh, all you need to do is to look at where China's, uh, China's wealthy, China's powerful, and China's well-to-do are sending their kids. They're not sending them to China's best university. They're sending them here. Chinese applicants for American undergraduate colleges, the number is rising a 100% increase a year. So the customers, no. Second, low-wage cost competition. The U.S. cannot compete because this is uh, in, term, in terms of wages, which I, because we're talking about uh, here $20 an hour. I think that's average manufacturing. China two dollars an hour. So how just can you compete? Just uh, that's not where the U.S. can. The, the problem with the U.S. is that now outside manufacturing, can you find jobs that pay middle class wages? This is a huge challenge. Right? It used to be before globalization, you can have a manufacturing job that can support a middle class lifestyle. But now with globalization, not just China, India as well. So that's that's a conundrum, I, I think. But uh, to uh, one solution that's not there is to pr- make Americans accept Chinese level wages. Do you want a social revolution, <laughs> or do you want uh, uh, want to persuade a large? Number of Americans to accept very low wage conditions. As I said, you cannot get somebody to uh, wake up from their warm beds to go to a shop floor to assemble iPhones with a cup of tea and a biscuit at midnight. So Chinese veto. Uh, I just wrote that piece in the New York Times Global Edition. Uh, why China vetoed? Uh, first of all, I think China Chinese leaders themselves don't like democratic transitions. I think that's that much is clear. But the other thing is there's this uh, strategic deal between China and Russia. They're going to protect each other's back at the United Nations Security Council. So China will join Russia in vetoing uh, resolutions that will hurt Russia's interest, and Russia will do the same for China. So uh, in this case, Russia does not want Syria penalized. China doesn't care about Syria. So China said, oh, I help you this time, you're going to help me next time. So that's, I think, the primary concern. Last remark answered one of the high school questions. So now we'll have uh, three more questions. Uh, Could you comment on China's geography in the sense of uh, how it's related to the Indian Ocean and the... uh, Building of uh, assisting of uh, Iran building uh, Pakistan building a port in order to uh, uh, have oil be able to come into there, and also whether or not the uh, disputes with India over the boundary are still active. You touched on the idea of a social revolution. I want to know if you take that serious, if that could happen in today's age in China. Uh, they seem to have the formula for that to happen, and what your remarks on that are. One more question. 
As you are well aware, the uh, Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party is pretty much the old liners, the 12 or 13 guys that are kind of out of sight. Um, given the, the needs of, the, of what you said on the economic growth and that kind of stuff, do, who do you see or do you have any idea who the replacements are that are going to make this thing happen? Or are the hardliners just going to breed more hardliners and still have the same problem? Thanks. Great question about Chinese geography. Uh, if you look at sort of great powers in the world, starting with Great Britain, uh, the U.S., then look at aspiring great powers in the past, Germany, Russia, now China, the two successful great powers have, uh, were blessed, or are still blessed with geography. Look at the U.S. Uh, let's put Great Britain aside. Very weak neighbors, access to open ocean, no blockage. Russia, no access to the sea. Germany, the same. So they had enormous trouble securing themselves. China falls in the second category. China is a great power that uh, is surrounded by hostile neighbors, very strong hostile neighbors. We're not talking about pushovers, even Vietnam. Think about how Vietnam is a country, 80 million people, uh, and it has border disputes. No, no it has uh, uh, territorial disputes in the South China Sea with China. India, nuclear armed. Russia, nuclear armed. Even Korea is not. And Japan is very powerful. So that way, it's... And then if, if you look at China's access to the sea, it's blocked. So-called first island chain, you look at, because if you want to gain open access to the sea, you've got to get past Japan, get past Taiwan, get past the Philippines, and then the Malacca Strait, South China Sea. So in other words, China's access to open ocean is a question mark. So you, uh, and then because now you're talking about China uh, sea lane security, because China depends on seaborne trade, not just in terms of exports, but in terms of imports, oil from the Middle East, from the Middle East, uh, from Africa. They all goes through the Indian Ocean, goes through the Malacca Strait, and China has no blue water navy to protect its ceilings. So in other words, it is a very powerful economy, but also a very vulnerable economy. On the, uh, I just wrote something on the Chinese dilemma. It's not the, uh, uh, whether China has a blue navy or not. It is, the essential dilemma is that China is a country with global interests, but with no global power projection capabilities. And so you have two choices. Two choices. One is to go it alone, develop your blue water navy. But if you do so, you're going to get into a conflict with the U.S., with your neighbors. Because once you have your aircraft carriers, all sorts of offensive capabilities, people say, why are you doing this? Because you, you can use the same capabilities protecting your seaborne trade, and you can use, use them to intimidate other people. So that's one. The other is to work with the West, to join in this collective 
security arrangements to protect. So that's the Chinese thing. The second is a revolution in China. I think nowadays revolutions are very hard because uh, revolutions, uh, you, if you look at the last revolution, successful revolution, it was Iran, uh, 1979. Uh, but that was largely a very quick overthrow of a very weak uh, dictatorship. Nowadays, uh, governments control so much advantage in violence that they can suppress revolution very quickly. Uh, uh, and uh, But popular uprising is still possible. But when, if, uh, I'm not saying that China is going to experience uh, such an incident, but I can foresee a scenario in which low economic growth, uh, widespread dissatisfaction among the middle class, and then an elite uh, group defects from the current system. Then, with all of these ingredients, you can have a, a, a political upheaval that replaces the current system. Finally, uh, hardliners, uh, do I see any uh, alternatives? I think the Chinese government today is a carefully balanced coalition. Typically, you have three groups of people. Ideological hardliners will say, we have to uh, do everything to keep the current system uh, in power. Then you have the technocrats who say, I don't care about politics. What I care is policy. How am I going to deliver economic growth? How am I going to ensure banks do not explode? How am I going to ensure that China's power plants actually have coal to burn? These are very specific. These are engineers the engineering approach to government. Then you have the third group. They're more flexible. See, the current system is not sustainable. Let's try to tinker around the system to make it work better without changing it. So yeah, basically, so I, my suspicion is that the next group will consist of more or less the same type. Uh, in other words, it's a system uh, but it's a group of leaders who would like to model through without fundamental change. We have time for one more question. Um, right there. Uh, I want to know what you thought about um, how China's going to handle uh, Kim Jong-nam. Will they eventually try and maybe install him if Kim Jong-un fails to consolidate his power? Do you have a more pro Beijing North Korea? That's one question. Yeah, uh, it's I think China has already shown that it is going to uh, keep the Kim dynasty alive come hell or high water. Just, it, because it's, uh, uh, it's demonstrated. Uh, when Kim Jong-il Kim Jong died, all the senior Chinese leaders, except one or two, went to the embassy to pay respect. This is unprecedented. It's, it sends a political message. So uh, this is, I think what the Chinese themselves have no control over is what goes on inside North Korea. Because maybe the Chinese want to keep the Kim Dynasty alive. Something else in North Korea 
has different ideas. So and then China has no, uh, no influence. Uh, incidentally, I think it's a very bad policy for China uh, because at some point we know the two Koreas will reunify and South Korea will take over and the South Koreans will remember that China did everything in its power to block the reunification. Uh, so a reunified Korea will not be China's friend. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. <laughs> for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.